Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of Riot Acts with me, your host, Mr. Renfrey Dedman. Hello. Uh, joining me today is a previous guest who we've already had on the show back in February. Remember those days, February of 2020, when we were all allowed to interact with one another in the same room together. Uh, <laughs> it's Vlad Matviekov. How are you, my friend? I'm very well. Thanks for having me, Remfrey. It is so nice to see you again. Do you know what? I just realised, we've been friends for a few years now, and I just realised as soon as I said your surname, I've never said it aloud, and I bet I've said it wrong, haven't I? I've totally fucked uh, up. It's close enough to rock and roll, to be honest. <laughs> tell, me, tell me how you pronounce it properly. I should know this. I've known you for a long time now, and I've never actually said um, your surname. Yeah, think of it as Meg Bacon, but just Matt Bakoff. <laughs> Matt Bakoff. Oh, I can I can remember that. McBacon, Matt Bakoff. I like that. Okay. It's Vlad McBakoff. Vlad is a man who juggles many, many hats. And last February when he was on the show, you had your bass playing hat on as you pluck four strings for in Technicolor. You appeared alongside uh, the guitarist Dave from that band and helped us dissect that week's releases. As far as I recall, uh, <laughs> we actually disagreed on quite a lot of stuff. If you remember, turns out that me and Steve need to listen to more Tame Impala. And um, we really liked that Broken Islands record. And I think you were a bit ho-hum towards it. So if that's a fair enough thing to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm sorry to disagree with you. I know if you're an intimidating uh, figure and everybody who comes on the podcast uh, just tries to please you. But uh, everyone here I was uh, chatting shit. Everyone says I'm an intimidating figure. Everyone. That's what everyone knows me for. You know, they're like, Deadman, <laughs> the intimidating guy. Yeah, exactly. Um, we touched on a couple of other bits and pieces during that podcast that you do, but I've been wanting to get you back on this show. I, actually, to be honest, I've been wanting to get you on the show properly for absolutely ages because um, you have fingers in many, many pies in this crazy industry that we call music. Um, and... I believe it gives you a very unique perspective on the industry as a whole that is very much worth exploring. Uh, do you think that's fair to say? Uh, well, I hope that it is as you say it, because otherwise people listening to this are going to get really, really bored. No, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I, do, I do juggle a lot of things. I run, um, co-own a venue in Brighton, I run a studio, I play in bands. Um, end up working on a lot of AV content promoting festivals so it is right to say that I juggle a lot of things yeah and hopefully some of the things I can talk about are um, are interesting enough and hopefully I'll sneak in some jokes in there uh, as well <laughs> you've got a lot of plates being spun at the same time um, but before we get into that properly I want people to get to know you like I know you Vlad maybe not exactly like I know you because that's far too intimate but you know um, know you well enough to say uh, and get to get back to the beginning of um what of sort of how you got into music and i want to talk about your travels a lot as well because you ha have traveled the world my friend you have lived in so many different places over the years um tell me about what made you go off on your travels in the first place and start exploring the world with such gusto and where did you go where have you been um well my both my family are um they're doctors and they were um, sort of working in MSF style jobs. So when I was a kid, 
Uh, we switched countries MSF quite a lot. Is, um, medicines um, Frontier? Yeah. Uh, so they essentially went where they were needed quite a lot of the time. So I tagged along with them because I didn't get have a choice. And uh, while I complained a lot about that as a kid, because it's not really fun switching schools, switching friends, switching yeah. countries and languages, in the end it was a blessing in disguise because it kind of instilled this restlessness in me and wanting to travel and get out in the world and see more. So uh, it also exposed me to different cultures and languages. Um, I'm lucky enough to, I claim to speak five languages, but I really just speak four. Um, well, so, well, uh, and, uh, Czech, Russian, Spanish, and I speak a bit of English. Uh, <laughs> so with that, I hope to communicate with you today. So after essentially after a life of, of traveling around as a kid, uh, when I got to university, I got a um, scholarship to go to the States to play football and uh, soccer um, in, in America. And um, eventually, um, short four months in, I had a terrible injury. The scholarship was taken away. And uh, I kind of uh, stopped pursuing a, a sort of a wannabe career in, in sports and I fully concentrated on music. And um, I ended up going to a total of eight different universities and wow. switching countries along the way. Um, and um, then I ended up in England. I started a business with some friends and unfortunately it went well. So um, <laughs> now, I, now I live in a country where people are grumpy and it rains all the time. What was the football injury? What did you do? Uh, I it was in a non-glamorous state of Iowa. Somebody else uh, stepped through my ankle and broke all the tendons and ligaments. There was an emergency surgery that they didn't do a really good job in. And since then, I basically uh, just kind of continuously have injuries. As we speak right now, I've had knee surgery. Yeah. Uh, and that started yeah. as, uh, so I can't really walk for the next 64 days, but who's counting? <clears throat> oh. But um, yeah, that started uh, back then with a football injury with an ankle and kind of the bad posture and bad state of walking. It's kind of transformed my shitty body. Um, and as I went into music and started uh, going onto DIY tours and sleeping on floors and eating unhealthily, um, it just I just started crumbling. I'm in my 30s and I'm an unhealthy piece of shit. Um, <laughs> and that's where we're at, really, Rem. Um. <laughs> Tell me some of the um, other places that you have lived, because you've lived in some extraordinary places over the years. Um, sure. So after the States, I went back to Madrid. Then I lived in the Netherlands for a while. I went to Australia. Um, previously, I lived in Argentina, where my father is from, in Czech Republic. So um, I've been around quite a few places. Um, and um, yeah, but then it got stuck in a very positive way in England, in Brighton which is the best place in England. Because um, if you keep uh, heading any more south, then you're out of England, so there's no more warmer climate. That's and true. north of France is pretty shit. So uh, um, yeah, so that's uh, essentially from that path, uh, that's how I ended up in England. Specifically in Brighton, there's, um, you always think going to these universities or jamming with people that you're kind of, you have these preconceived notions of how you're gonna set up your network of friends. And ironically, the strongest network of friends I had set up was in a camping ground where I lived for six months because I was a little bit broke, but I was living in a tent and studying in a university in Australia. And uh, it's, um, <laughs> maybe this is too far out, but I remember one time these two guys came and one of them was Joe Gosney from Black Peaks. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I remember how, how he came met, in. How we met effectively, our mutual friends. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. that's correct. Yeah. Um, 
So I was in a camping ground and Joe Gosney got there and he was absolutely wasted. And I remember he was trying to, in this campground, sell some hash for 50 bucks a gram and it was terrible. And he, he was just wait. And I remember just looking at him, this English guy was just wasted trying to like, do, uh, I just remember thinking, God, I'm never going to be friends with that guy. Just look at him. But um, three <laughs> days later, we were getting on like a house on fire, writing tunes and jamming. And from there on, I went to meet a little mini bubble of Brighton uh, people who kept talking about this wonderful place in England, which I eventually ended up visiting. And that's how I got stuck there. Uh, well, when I was 21, 22, I um, ended up doing a master's degree in management in the creative economy um, in London. And uh, that was in Kingston University. And I just went to visit my friends after it. And Brighton seemed like a safer, sort of smaller place to get a start on. And um, the glass ceiling is a lot lower. There's a lot less jobs in the industry, but it, creatively it's, it's absolutely booming. And it goes through cycles where, you know, um, there's loads of great music coming out of there and sometimes maybe there isn't. And I was just there at a time when loads of exciting things were bubbling up. And um, I, in the very best sense of the word, kind of got stuck there and had an idea with a few of my friends uh, for starting a business. And um, looking back at it now, starting Small Pond, I, I wouldn't have done it if I would have known how fucking difficult it is. Hmm. Uh, but there's part of this element of like, you know, bravery in large extent, to large extent is ignorance. So it was just being ignorant of the difficulties of uh, what we were really getting into. But I with can, that naivety. I can with that. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not completely convinced. I would have. Um, I'm not completely convinced. I would have. You know, started this podcast with Steve if I'd known how difficult it was going to be. Um, but I mean, I'm fucking glad I did. But like, yeah, like you know, it's kind of a little bit of like ignorance can be a blessing in disguise, can't it? Sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then looking back on it, you're always thankful for those things. And it's those experiences that you're so glad you have gone through, but you know, knowing what it is probably wouldn't have jumped some into something this large in a hurry again. Um, but yeah, part of part of getting here and getting to chat to you today, that is uh, all part of that journey. So where did the idea for Small Pond germinate? You've been you've been hanging out with some friends and um, do you remember do you recall um, was there a conversation? Were there several conversations? How did it begin? Um, yeah, well, I mean, you said that I have my fingers in a lot of pies or even spinning a lot of hats. So I think um, I know some people that are virtuoso musicians. I think, um, for example, you know, we mentioned Joe. He's one of them. Um, I think, for example, I take Sam um, Samuel Organ from Physics House Band, who's just one of those people who's, you know, who's people who's, uh, who, who's, who are kind of vehicles for musical expression. They're yeah. such talented creators. I was, I, I don't think I'm that. Um, I, there's a lot of things in music that interest me and I'd like to work on. And there's a lot of projects and individual things I'd like to achieve. And um, I think, sorry I've to met interrupt a... you, but with people like Sam and Joe, you're talking about the kind of people, like particularly Sam from Physics House Band, just seems to be the sort of person who can pick up an instrument that he's never ever seen in his life before and play it like that. One of those kind of people, annoyingly talented people. That's the just people so about, right? frustratingly yeah. talented. Yeah. Just yeah. so like you know the, the assholes really. Yeah. Like some of us work. Yeah, really. Honest. Let's be honest. Some of us work really hard to be average at one thing, and here are these people who's just like, oh, what's this? And half an hour. Later, he's just fucking ripping. Yeah, how? How? I know it's annoying. Uh, so yeah, so um, I'm essentially started forming a um, 
circle of friends and little by little we started combining ideas together so you know you know creating uh, content in terms of um, recordings or live videos a few of us wanted to always had the ambition of running a studio or building a studio we wanted to put on shows as well um, uh, part of this sort of DIY culture if you start touring and seeing how other people are doing things you also want to be part of that community and sort of give back in a way and organize events so it started as a combination of ideas and uh, we started sort of bringing them together and um, naturally falling into roles of who, who looked after what and that started growing into where we're at now. Um, describing exactly what Small Pond is is quite tricky because like you just said there it's, it's a big conglomerate conglomeration of lots of lots of ideas together so i suppose on one hand it's a label on the other hand it's a recording studio and space and a practice space for people to practice in down in brighton really lovely space as well um you also put on shows and bits and pieces in the small pond name as well um there's your association with bad pond festival which we'll get onto in a little bit so there's lots of lots of ideas going on with Small Pond, how do you kind of, you must have had to sort of sum it up and explain exactly what it is, probably for like funding and so on and so forth in the past. How do you describe exactly what Small Pond is? Because it is very difficult to sum it all up, really. Um, yeah, I mean, rarely do we ever kind of, <laughs> rarely do I ever have to explain it as a whole. So this might be a little bit bumpy along the way, but okay. essentially is, um, it's the main, the main beating heart of it is the physical location. So in 2015, um, we um, took out a loan and we got our hands onto a building in the center of Brighton. And then sort of, uh, you know, bouncing back to that ambitiousness and naivete that could be seen as bravery. We kind of got our, this, um, our hands in this place and we emailed 14 companies and we were like, cool, we got this place. We want to build practice rooms and we want to build a studio. Can you guys, can you guys give us a quote for how much that would be? And we got, the top quote we got was 1.4 million and the median, the average was about 500,000. We were like, cool, we can scratch together like a hundred grand maybe yeah. between all, you know, seven of us. Like, so um, we were lucky enough to find a person who said that he would teach us how to build. So he essentially placed an order for uh, for all the materials, for all of the tools, and he would come um, three days a week and he'd show us how to uh, lay a floor, how to frame a room, how to build, and then he would leave and leave us a to-do list and come back next week to check in and show it. So he would show us how to build something the first week we'd build it, then he'd come back the next week and say, really well done, except we're gonna have to take everything apart and start again, because you guys have no fucking idea what you're doing. <laughs> so. Um, and, you know, and this was a, a tough learning process because, you know, we've done bits of DIY around our house here or there, but nobody's really a builder. So it was a long process that was meant to be three and a half, four months that took six and took the life out of us, really. And yeah. it was incredibly um, difficult to do. But at the end of the day, we built a facility from scratch. And that is the bread and butter of, uh, of Small Pond. Our main income comes from rehearsal spaces and studio, and then it fuels all these different projects that you touched on uh, previously. I've heard you told this story a few times and it never gets old um, because that idea of literally physically building the space. There are a lot of DIY operations around in music that I admire and I have a lot of respect for, but I can't think of many who have physically built their studio, 
and rehearsal rooms and record and you know to, to if you went there now i mean i went there before i knew that you guys had put it together and built it and i was completely astonished i'm sure there was a lot of trial and error and i'm sure there was a lot of like um putting flooring down and then having to rip it all up because you didn't have a clue what you were doing um but it really is quite an extraordinary feat you know for for did you say it was seven people it was seven friends basically uh, yeah that's the core team uh, but yeah thank thank you because that that is uh, that's nice to hear and like you know we've had since then like people come in and kind of look at the place do evaluations we work with universities and everybody seems to think that it's done to a professional standard if they only knew the hazardous environment that we worked in <laughs> the amount of mistake the amount of blood there is behind those walls um i think stories from building it that you can tell me that you think are worth um yeah i'm not sure if that would make us lose our license or not but uh there was uh no no i'm exaggerating there there were a lot of uh there were a couple of uh accidents uh there was one moment when one of us joe capel uh who's the drummer used to be the drummer in wildcat strike and uh, now drums for libra libra where he almost died because he didn't put a song correctly and it shot and it took off his hair and that had been an inch over he would have so i mean there was a few spicy moments but um at the end of the day we made it through uh nobody died and uh were we're still here where, today were there moments where you wanted to quit where you were like i've taken we've, we've taken on too much this is ridiculous absolutely the first day remfrey i wanted to quit the first <laughs> Because when the materials for the build arrived, because, you know, you're ordering things online under somebody's guidance, it was 52 tons of materials. Now, ton is a word that I would use for loads, and it's not a word I would, you know, aspire to use in the sense that they teach you in high school. Offloading 52 tons of materials in three and a half days is hell. Is absolutely just when we just when we were done putting stuff in and before we even started, I just it was too late to quit. It's not like Amazon, you know, we weren't going to pack it up and send it back. But that that was the first time I wanted to quit. And then every day ever since, really. Goodness me. It's one of those amounts that you can't even amount. I mean, a ton is a lot. Like a ton is a lot. 52 tons. That's 52 times a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. Um, that's that is incredible but that is truly i mean i'm not trying to be like oh you're more diy than anyone else but that really is a diy operation isn't it you know actually building the studio and putting it together that's absolutely and i mean it's like there's many blessings in disguise in that because you know whenever anything breaks we've literally built these walls so it's kind of brought us to a place where we can maintain it by ourselves when we've expanded since then and built new drum rooms uh, there could be a project that I'm looking at now and expanding the studio as well. So it, there's a few things that we kind of have now through that process that we can carry with us for the rest of our journey, which is very useful. What was the um, creative impulses? like? So once it's all built and stuff, I think bands that are on Small Pond, what would I say the through line of bands are on Small Pond? There's a there's slightly left of centre, slightly off kilter. I think when... I hear an, a band coming through on Small Pond. There's just a sli- slightly like a slightly weird quirk to it, maybe, or a slightly. I mean, just to name some of the bands that are currently on Small Pond uh, that we spoke about on the show. You've got Clit Drip, Bitch Falcon, Wildcat Strike, Town Portal. There's also Yumi and the Weather, Natalie Evans, um, past alumni of. Small Pond have been the Physics House Band, Mutiny on the Bounty, Luo, Lint. Um, 
and all of those but there's, there's quite diverse stuff there i mean natalie evans is a very kind of um zoe deschanel type uh singer songwriter um but then you know you've got the likes of physics house band who are some crazy prog jazz odyssey kind of thing what, is there a through line for you of what makes a small pa- pond act um sure I'll, I'll answer this in a roundabout way so uh when we started building the physical location in 2015 and uh, we always, um, Dave and I, especially Dave from, uh, from In Technicolor, um, we always wanted to run a label. And when I met him in Leeds, um, uh, you know, we stayed friends when he eventually moved down to Brighton. That was the chat that we wanted, we wanted to start a label. And as we were building it, uh, friends of ours from Italy, a band called Valerian Swing, said, hey, would you just mind uh, putting the small pond stamp on this? You know, sort of like kind of became a label before we were intending to. And um, I didn't know this, little... actually. I didn't know it started with Valerian Swing. So Valerian Swing are a, um, yeah, Italian post-rock band trio? Uh, correct, yeah. yes. Uh, and uh, Dave knew them. He, Dave also plays in a band called Delta Sleep, and he had toured with them in Italy. And so that kind of started, and when um, that's kind of started the, the label physically, just beyond the idea stage. And after that, you know, I just kind of lost my fear or my shame. And as soon after that, I just emailed two bands that I really liked, uh, which were Alarmist and Town Portal. Uh, and I just asked, like, look, are you guys writing any music? We're starting a label. And um, from then on, it just kind of picked up that way. And I remember I, even, I, I emailed them with um, the email title was uh, Collaboration Proposition. Uh, which is so terrible, you know, like, I remember... That sounds like um, an early Meshuggah album. <laughs> but it, it's just it is like you know you're learning on the job i never approached yeah. the band to work with them in that capacity so and i remember the first time i saw town portal play live morty morton the bassist took some time off their set to just rinse me about that and then he's saying like you know oh then we got an email from some dodgy guy called vlad <laughs> titled uh, collaboration proposition uh so uh now we're here in in london playing a show and, uh, you know, and it's um, little by little, it kind of it started growing out of, I guess, the sort of experimental rock uh, field. And it's um, down the line, my uh, ambition for Small Pond as a label, and I think uh, it's shared, and I know it's shared uh, by the team, it's, uh, it's to become, uh, the common thread for, for there to be is just music to be good. And it's to become sort of a tastemaker and not be bound by genre. But at the same time, it's easier to start out of a niche. The glass ceiling is lower, but the audience is more defined. And our, our sort of involvement naturally in the bands that we played with, the bands that we interacted with, was in experimental rock. So it started in that scene. And little by little, as we started working through the, through the first two years, three years, we started opening up and just working on things that we liked rather than things that were bound by genre. So now, you know, you mentioned Natalie Evans. We have... Um, also, somebody uh, called Inwards, who's an electronic music artist that makes, uh, I guess, modular techno. Um, yeah, there is very interesting stuff. Inwards, like really, really odd electronic experimental stuff. Yeah, yeah, but... very, really good. So, so it's yeah. I think the journey kind of came from from that niche and out into things that we like, trying to establish yourself. I guess now we're more of like sort of a six music label, you know, BBC Radio 6. Most of the things that we work with go get classified as that type of weird rather than just progressive or experimental rock. 
And little by little, I just want to kind of outgrow that and just be people who work on music uh, that is well received across the world, not necessarily pigeonholed in any one area. I'm going to jump around a little bit here um, just because I wanted to get actually into your music tastes growing up as well. That experimental rock um, stuff. I mean, I mean, experimental rock doesn't even cover it for Small Pond, but I think Six Music's actually quite a good shout. Um, I don't know if we said this live on the show, but we have actually used Six Music as a kind of bracket for kind of like how vast we want to be as well because uh for riot act because six music is really really vast i mean you will get you know joanna newsom going into napalm death and that's exactly what we want to do and i think that's what we've striven to do and i think we do for the most part um striven jesus christ um that's not a word <laughs> by the way um but uh what what music growing up you know there's plenty of bands that you listen to that you know just listen to music and and you're like oh this is really good but what made you become passionate about music were there specific um, bands were there specific moments were there specific gigs what were the kind I mean, of I've, core yeah. acts um i remember like my early memories of being in the car with my dad i remember just like um zeppelin cds you know um so things things like it started everything old roads kind of lead back to rock uh, yeah. For me, anyways, and uh, as a kid, I was listening to a lot of um, you know grunge uh, onto the new metal. I kind of went through the motions of I'm a '90s kid, so I uh, went through that. But um, found out that when it started getting to the age of 15, 16, I just started liking more music than my immediate uh, circle of friends, and um, yeah, it kind of expanded. I liked a lot of uh, jazz. I like a lot of um, weird folk music. Uh, I like there's just um, a lot of wonderful things out there, and I think. Um, I think anybody who wants to be a good, you know, music industry practitioner, a good musician, I think should listen to a lot of different things and kind of formulate and read a lot of different things, watch a lot of different things. And that's how your output is going to be the most informed, whether it's, you know, academic or musical or artistic or whatever it is. So I think, uh, thankfully I started landing into that naturally rather than reading a book when i was 40 and realized that i've only done one thing for the first half yeah. of my life and i needed sports car and my dick is too small <laughs> so um you know uh, so luckily little by little i just i just liked more things and i started dabbling in them and um yeah and i, I mean i play uh, guitar and bass and anything with strings if you sit down for long enough you can kind of figure out so uh, little by little i just started playing in bands and i I was I at one point described myself as a closet bassist because I wanted to be a guitarist, but I kept being asked to join bands as a bass player. So I just had to assume that that's that's what I am. I guess I'm a bass player, and uh, that's how I kind of ended up, uh, you know, meeting Dave and playing in a Technicolor as well. Yeah, yeah. Do you think um, traveling helped open you up to more music as well? Because I mean, when I I was like quite a strict rock slash metal kid growing up as a teenager and then i moved to drama school and suddenly i was opened up to like worlds of folk and nick cave and the bad seeds and like a lot of like female singer songwriters and so on and so forth you know pj harvey and blah 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 so did traveling help open up those boundaries for you do you think yeah i, th I think so because growing up um 
growing up in the 90s or like sort of uh, 2000s, there wasn't this culture of streaming music yet. Yeah. And coming across different scenes or different pockets of things was not quite as easy as finding a band on Spotify and letting the algorithm roll on and introduce you to 10 more bands. Yeah. So I think switching friend groups and sort of floating around places has helped me uh, get a wider wider spectrum at that age. But I think what really has helped me is in moving around is languages. Because, you know, speak I speak four of them, but you, up, you know, it's not horrendously useful on the day-to-day. -day. You just communicate in one language usually. But knowing different languages and the, it's... At the end of the day, you know, language is the funnel, <laughs> the funnel for thought. You have all of these wonderful thoughts and ideas, but you got to express them one word at a time. And each language sort of builds the thought expressions, the sentences, the patterns of how you want to get those ideas across in a different manner. So I think it helped me to both communicate and interpret things differently, uh, having this ability to uh, speak different languages. So I think that that was sneakily and maybe perhaps less obviously a big influence in shaping my musical taste and my musical expression. Mm, very nice. That's, I've never thought about language shaping that kind of thing before but i suppose but then i only speak one one language because i'm english and we're all <laughs> terrible people so um well let's get back to to small pond and i mean something i do want to talk to you about is the bad pond festival there was a wonderful fella called ryan balch uh who lived down in brighton and he used to put on shows as bad math and uh, he was sort of the other person who was reaching out to the same bands and sort of um working within that experimental guitar world um, about five years ago. And um, we, were, we were pals and we just decided to put this, uh, you know, organize this first event together and see how it went. And um, later on, he became a booking agent and moved out, uh, moved away to London and stopped putting on shows. And um, we just carried it on as, uh, as a small pond project, but under the name Bad Pond. So it started as a collaboration and then now we just run with it. Okay, okay. So... Uh, so Bad Pond's been going in total for five years. Uh, I believe so, yes. Yeah, okay. And obviously everything would have had to change for this year. I mean, just like everybody else, you've been affected by all this massive global pandemic and stuff. And so there's a streamed event this year, which I'm very happy to say that we are a part of. Um, as a matter of fact, I can reveal this, can't I, Vlad? Uh, it's okay for me to say that... Um, I'm actually going, I've been tasked with doing interviews with all of the bands in between sets. So I will be a part of that streaming event on the 19th of December. Um, it features Jamie Lenman headlining, a Right Act favourite, St. Agnes, A.A. Williams, Orchards, Gender Rolls, Clit Drip and Yumi and the Weather. Uh, and it's free. It's absolutely bloody free, isn't it? Starts at 2.30, I believe. Correct. On the Sat on Saturday, the 19th of December. Um what i mean this sounds like this sounds like a very broad question but what have you had to do to change i mean obviously you would have ideally liked this to be a festival that people could go to but you must have had to make many many changes to make this event happen this year as well what has that been like um yeah we were meant to have a um a regular edition of the festival uh in may um we had And So I Watch You From Afar and Delta Sleep headlining and loads of other wonderful bands. Yeah. Uh, but of course, this year has turned out different than everybody has planned. So uh, we ended up moving it from May to September, from September to next year. And um, yeah, it's, it's, 
it's sort of trying to do the best we can with what we got. Uh, we were lucky enough to receive funding from the Arts Council for this edition of it. And the idea for it is to create an event and, and financial pressure is off once we got the funding. So the idea is to provide work for bands that have releases this year uh, that were not able to tour it, to give them a live show, to give work to crew, uh, to to a a AV people, to also wonderful podcasters who will do way too many interviews. Sorry about that. Uh, but um, yeah, the idea is to create this collaborative free project without having the financial pressure and create one edition that kind of fits to what the world will let us do in the current circumstances. I mean, this year has affected the industry in an absolutely cataclysmic way, really. Um, can you tell us some of the some of the projects that have that you know apart from bad ones some of the things that have affected you and your projects due to this uh this whole global pandemic and what that has meant for you um sure i mean last time um i was in riot act was uh, with dave to speak about the technicolor album which was out in um, february and obviously this was right before the lockdown happened so uh, personally i've lost four tours and an ability to really promote a debut album which yeah. um on the, you know it's rather punishing i mean we work on other releases like you mentioned clit drip uh, inwards bitch file everything's kind of been sliding um we've had to close down the studio um and the rehearsal rooms which is the main bread and butter of how everybody on the team makes their living so it's um it's a hard year. Um, I last uh, last year we um, um, went into a new project, which is a venue in Brighton called Chalk, and uh, it seemed like a very safe bet because in Brighton it goes from six hundred cap to eighteen hundred cap, and there's a big hole um, in terms of venues. So we, um, with a couple of other people like Alex from One Inch Badge, Matt, a uh, few other people, we build this nine hundred cap venue. Uh, about five months before a lockdown and the stop of the of you know everything in the live sector so it's a very it's a very hard year across the board but um, at the same time you just kind of have to keep going as best you can so that's what we're trying well, to do you, you just can't predict that stuff happening can you you know you, there's just there's just you just cannot predict it and I remember talking to you quite excitedly about um, chalk and like what you're going to do with it and there's some really exciting plans i mean i don't know if we can talk about it too much here or not but um it sounded absolutely amazing and then you know something completely out of anyone's hands just completely kind of you're right like when when you were talking about it it sounded like a completely and utterly safe bet and then suddenly that's kind of ripped away from you due to something totally totally unexpected yeah, it, it's tough. But at the same time, you know, um, everybody on the Small Pond team is healthy. Everybody is able to uh, make their rent. We still get to work on cool things in a different context. So um, I don't want to, you know, sort of moan or take too much pity on myself. And you're right. As you said, we, this thing couldn't, it wasn't so clear that it was going to happen. And it's hard to predict. Um, what is a shame is the response to it. Um, which could have been done better. That is something that was within the control of the people or maybe of people in charge rather than the people. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, that, that has um, left something else to be desired for, more to be desired for really. Uh, but even saying that, um, we, we have received financial assistance, which has been key to uh, making it thus far. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
what would you have liked to have seen um i mean we can only really speak for the uk government um but what would you have liked to have seen um the people in charge do that they didn't do um i'd like england to be a little bit more like germany uh in if we're comparing countries specifically in the live sector um i think you know if you look at this government it has this quality of um not underfunding things you know whether you look at, you can look at almost any public services you know whether it's you can see the general tendency let's say with the nhs you can see uh you can see that across the board there's less and less funding being provided for uh for the public sector and um you know even when you go on furlough now you know you get 80 percent, not 100 percent. there's always it all it's always done the bare minimum and i think in the live sector for example the government uh in my interpretation of it is kind of waiting for an industry-wide consensus of what is going to happen to then give slightly not enough help you know to for it to just bubble along and because there hasn't been an industry consensus in terms of what's going to happen with the live circuit and because it's difficult to have any consensus or let, al let alone know what would accurately know what's going on. So there has been basically no help. Uh, and, a, you know, and it's, it's it, it, to some extent, I find this cynical. The, the, you know, in, in broad terms, you say the left and the right, the conservative government is more business friendly, but you can't really say that it's business friendly in that full sense of the word. It's friendly towards certain industries and towards certain industry players. Being business friendly would be, would have meant helping businesses, physically helping industries, but there have been large contracts going into uh, dodgy places while, uh, you know, the sort of smaller uh, places have been left alone uh, to, to hang there. And it, it's a cynical move in the, in the extent that, you know, eventually the world will open back up. There will be a touring circuit and these, this infrastructure won't disappear, but it will conglomerate in fewer and fewer hands. This is, uh, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste, they say. And this is a way for venues to go bro broke and to be uh, swallowed up by larger, larger companies. It's not that we're going to have an Amazon touring circuit per, per se, but, you know, it's going to be a concentration of assets in fewer and fewer hands. And um, that is the general tendency across all industries, but it's really sad to see it in music uh, due to the lack of response. And I think it's calculated for, for that, for the sort of uh, monopoly-like business structure within the neoliberal system that we're living through. What do you predict would be the consequences of that, you know, having um, more venues and fewer hands? What do you think, what would, do you predict would be the consequences of that for people um, listening to this, for music fans and people who go to gigs on a, or who used to go to gigs on a relatively regular basis? Uh, I mean, in terms of the infrastructure, again, it won't disappear. So maybe the consumer, you know, gig goers won't notice it because the venue might change name and might have a different PA and a different ticketing system. But eventually you'll still be able to go there. Um, I think on the, I feel, I really feel for the people who own that infrastructure now, but what I feel more uh, is what is going to suffer more through this is the individuals, the creatives that are not supported, because uh, um, to begin with, there wasn't a lot of support. Um, you know, in places like Luxembourg, if you can prove that you play 50 gigs a year, you get 12 grand from the government and you get to make... There, is, there isn't such a support system as, uh, in, as there was in other European countries. And now uh, the belt is further tightened and uh, I fear for the creatives and for their ability to create in a time that is so difficult. Um, so uh, I think that more than the infrastructure of things, I, I, I worry about 
you know, there being less of an output for, uh, from, uh, from, from musicians and people who are going to be creating that output are going to be doing at the expense of their own healthy, balanced lives and their own ambitions. So it's making it harder to be, to be an artist, essentially. Considering how much we, the UK, the, the British, whang on about our musical history, and there is, you know, there's a lot to show off on it. We've got Pink Floyd and Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and uh, fucking Motorhead and, and uh, Black Sabbath. You know, I mean, there's so many, so much amazing uh, modern music that's come out of the UK with such a tiny island and considering that history it's kind of amazing uh how the government don't really seem to recognize that um whereas compared to i mean there's i'm sure there have been some amazing bands that have come out of luxembourg for example there are definitely but not not that have had the worldwide impact that say a led zeppelin have had i mean i think that's fair to say you know um and it's really shocking because I've toured, I've been lucky enough to sort of tag along and tour with bands in Europe and stuff like that. And the difference uh, between touring the UK and touring Europe, I mean, because so much is subsidized, you get a lot of stuff laid on for you, which is really, really nice. You know, like most of the time touring in Europe, you'll get like a decent spread, like, like a almost like a banquet of food <laughs> laid on for you at each show and stuff like that. And you're really well looked after and well treated i think there's quite i get the feeling that there's a lot more places in europe as well where there'll be venues where you can like sleep over and stuff like that so that you don't have to pay for accommodation and so on and so forth there are the odd uh, there are odd venues here and there in the uk that do that i can think of the crawford arms for example milton Keynes is a really cool setup like that but they are very few and far between in comparison i just think it's mad that um, considering that rich history, it's not something that uh, this, well, it's not something that the UK government seems particularly keen to capitalise on in any way, shape or form. Um, yeah, yeah, about that. It's a, you're, it's a very fair point to say that, you know, the creative output out of the UK is unmatched in Europe, let's say, uh, for, for music. Um, but I think that if you look uh, globally, you know, there's more movies made in Bollywood than there are in Hollywood, but Hollywood is very much so the tastemaker. The sort of um, in the world market, there are trendsetters and it is still in this Western world, England and the US that kind of are the global, that, that's where the, you know, the, the spotlight globally shines on and that is what determines the trends across the world. Um, so um, I think that with music, it's perhaps different than another industry. If you were in a production line, you know, and you knew that it cost a hundred bucks to make this product that you're selling, you, you could see where you could shave costs and where you could cut regulations or you could change the product. With music, it's so intangible that even though the government, I think, you know, is aware about this creative output, but you can... It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. The further you cut, the more you press the art sector, the more it rebels and produces this amazing content. There is, however, if it was a graph, I imagine at some point the, str the strangling hold on it will, will eventually drop. We haven't reached it yet, but there are there's so many intangible cuts and ways of not supporting that can still happen in a government that consistently underfunds all public areas of society in England that they're squeezing harder and harder and they're not noticing an effect drop yet so they'll keep squeezing harder as long as you know 
uh, there isn't a, a lash back at them that will be substantial enough for them to change. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting this intangible word you're using as well because I think um, it's intangible in that sense, but it's also uh, the government don't see sort of a, a, a... I suppose from creative endeavours, you don't see a progression, a, a good thing that you can sort of chart. It's more about kind of happiness and bringing people together and community and stuff like that. But you can't kind of... You, there's no such thing as a happiness graph or a satisfaction graph or anything like that or or like so because the government can't kind of interpret the data it almost feels like it's less important than say an industry like the financial sector where they can interpret the data and see raw kind of um uh data that says oh this bank have got uh you know three percent more money than they had last year you can't really do that with i mean there's certain bits and pieces that you can i guess but you can't fully express that with the arts and i think i i wonder if that's a big problem because uh it seems like a lot of the european sensibility just seems to kind of feel yes it's not as tangible to kind of grasp onto that but they they know that it's still important Whereas, you know, because you can't report it in a in a report at the end of the month, it can be just tossed away. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there is in a way there is um, some data on it, you know, because you see like, you know, the creative industries have contributed over five billion over the last year. And you see that like wouldn't an interesting idea be uh, the way that we're taxing our creative industries to use the tax from them to go directly back into the creative industries? Because what it contributes uh, versus what is given back to that is so not proportional. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, and people, uh, you know, there's far out lefties who would say, like, look, I want my taxes to go everything except into the military. But what if our taxes on music went back directly into music? Uh, and I don't think that that idea is so revolutionary that it should not be up for discussion in Parliament. Because, you know, they did have this recent discussion about whether streaming pays enough, which could have should have been the world's shortest discussion. And the answer is no. And and that's it. Uh, but in terms of fixing it, there is there's different ideas and approaches to to fixing it. I think the will to fix it is not there, and the popular pressure is not enough for any meaningful change to really happen. What um you we've spoken about streaming privately quite a lot in the past. You have some very very you've you know you know a lot more about it than I do. I have to confess. Um, what are some of those models that are um, that you think are really interesting in terms of potentially solving that problem that excite you? Um, oh, tricky questions, Ram. Uh, I think that uh, the the music, the recorded uh, music industry, was in free fall between ninety eight and two thousand fifteen. So it was it was always rising. Then it started yeah. falling yeah. until two thousand fifteen, and it started picking back up. In 2017, digital downloads uh, and streaming accounted for a larger uh, share of the market than any physical sale. So, um, you know, the numbers are there and also the, the way that technology is advancing. Streaming is the preferred consumption uh, method for music. That is where we're heading at. Uh, we all have these wonderful computer-like devices that yeah, are connected yeah. to high-speed internet and we it's can access these things. It's, it's just, it's it's, just it, very much so, and that's where it's heading. Uh, so um, what, how we organize that 
um, is is a whole different question. You know, um, the internet it just you know the internet was going to be this fantastic thing, and it was going to sort of equal out the world markets, and it was going to be this new place of freedom. But at the end of the day, uh, the internet just represents what our society does outside of it. And we've gone on to mimic uh, the financial inequality, the large players controlling the market. And um, that is why we have only a handful of large streaming services. And that is why uh, artists are remunerated for their, for their pay in that way. So I think it's a... Um, Changing the music industry is not something that lives uh, in isolation. I think this uh, changes to the music industry will follow once we start reorganizing and addressing some of the broader concepts in our society. Oof. That sounds like more than just putting a Band-Aid on it or a, <laughs> a plaster on it. So um, what would you like to see uh, happen to um, that streaming model? Um, yeah, I think in terms of Band-Aid, uh, I think we're all done with Band-Aids. I think this sort of sort of centrist approach of incremental changes, that is, we're at the very limit of what that can do, whether it's uh, in other industries or in music itself. Uh, I'd like to see, uh, you know, as, you know, my far left politics, I'd like to see nationalization of certain platforms, whether it be, you know, large um, retail platforms like Amazon. I don't think Amazon shouldn't exist just because Jeff Bezos is evil. You know, I think this is a fantastic service, but it either needs to be taxed or regulated or just straight up nationalized. I think that it would be quite interesting to see um, an equivalent of a national library in England and sort of the way that people pay for TV licenses just create a tax for each human being that lives in England that gives them the uh, access to a library that's licensed by the government for films and music. And you sort of change the interaction with all of this content, all of this art that's out there. And the gatekeepers are no longer the private industry bits of it. You know, they, it's fantastic what the private sector has built up, but we're very much facing the limitations of what is good for the wider society. Uh, and what is good for musicians, you know, in terms of bringing it back to what we're talking about. So again, I think it's very, it's very hard to put any more band-aids on it. And then, of course, there's positive, you know, like uh, hopefully Bandcamp will launch their streaming service soon. Uh, they've now done uh, live uh, performances in response to the current situation. So there are, you know, sort of good players versus bad players, better models versus worse models. But I think there's only so much that can be done within the larger paradigm, within the larger playing field that you know music just takes space in i'm really encouraged by how um popular uh bandcamp has how how the popularity of bandcamp has had uh, not a resurgence but it's 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 really become um on the tip of everyone's tongue and i feel like bandcamp for so many years was just the preserve of real music nerds like you and i um, even quite a few of my kind of journalist friends wouldn't kind of think to go to Bandcamp. They might have heard of it, but they wouldn't really think about going to it to like discover new music and stuff like that. I would say Bandcamp is the place where I've discovered like most of my new music, like for, for, for years and years and years, certainly since I've been a journalist. Um, I mean, outside of being sent new music, you know. Um, and it is just this wonderful space where... Uh, there was a wonderful, we've been discussing this NPR um, uh, article, which I'll link to in the show notes, which is sort of Bandcamp versus Spotify and um, the different approaches that they have. Um, I mean, 
I think the beautiful thing about Bandcamp is they don't even see themselves as a streaming service at the moment. They're trying to incorporate a streaming arm, but um, they just see themselves as someone who can directly give uh, music to people and then be a direct link between people who want to hear the music and the musicians who are delivering it as well. And try and get Bandcamp seem to want to try and get out of the way of that transaction as much as possible. You know, whereas Spotify or equivalents of Spotify, I always say Spotify, but there are others out there as well, um, seem to just sort of want to involve themselves as much as they possibly can without really being a massive creative driving force behind what is essentially a creative industry. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, they are certainly um, different models. Um, and yeah, Bandcamp are sort of the good guys. But there's this sort of prevailing notion that you know it's uh, you're interacting with the artist the way that you said and it's a lot of people who use bandcamp are sort of more savvy consumers that are more wary of where their you know digital dollars are going to so they want to make sure that the band gets the most of it you know it's sort of being that um that educated consumer and but in a way i think circling back to this almost even them being the good guys is in a way a band-aid uh, because do you remember that south park episode when um, when Walmart came into town and eventually everybody decided that it killed the high street and everybody should stop shopping. And then the next scene, everybody's at Kmart, you know? Yeah. And it's just, it's sort of, uh, as long as there is a Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon, as long as there is a way to have access to the world's music for 1099, uh, you're not like you're not going to get a widespread shift to this wonderful platform that stems out of responsibility. You know, in a wider maybe to take a parallel to this wider society thing, it's you know like um, uh, it's the hundred largest corporations are responsible for over seventy percent of emissions, and yet yeah. could, like you know individuals are being pressed to use different light bulbs. You know, yeah. uh, so it's like it's passing on the responsibility to the consumer rather than having it be on the industry side of things. So I do think that Bandcap are wonderful and I, I'm, it's exciting to see their growth and their expansion and more people within music sort of getting a, you know, fee, uh, savvier consumers getting feeling that for something isn't right, you know, and something could be done better and switching there. But I, I just have this prevailing feeling that for, you know, 7.8 billion people on earth and this internet connectivity expands and more and more people become consumers that they will reach for that lowest common denominator for consumption, for price, for availability. And as long as those companies are regulated and made uh, to operate in a different manner, uh, we're not really going to see that conclusive breakthrough and sort of move to the next stage, if you will. Because we had, you know, through, we had vinyl, then we had CDs, then we had the digitalization of media. And now we're sort of on the cusp of what, at least I hope, feels like we're on the cusp of a next stage within the digital domain. And, uh, yeah, hopefully that stage won't be dictated by a small number of players, but rather by a more democratically elected entity and uh, towards a goal that is more communal rather than for shareholder profit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've been quite guilty in the past. I've done it on this podcast quite a lot of kind of like painting Spotify et al as the bad guys. And that's, you know, that isn't really something that I should do, but I find it very, very difficult. And I, I because I'm so sort of incensed um, that... Spotify came up with this model of all the music, you know, well, all the music available on Spotify, which is probably, I don't know, 85, 90% of most of the music available in the Western world, certainly, uh, for 9.99 a month. And they've kind of, th that, that model of cheapening what music was, I mean, 
when we were growing up buying CDs or whatever, music was too much money. You know, it was over. It was uh, oversaturated. So I understand why there was this kind of move to kind of make it a very kind of not not worth much financial value. But then, I mean, this is an old argument, but this whole thing of kind of like, you know, um, a song costs less money than a cup of coffee and stuff like that. And people are willing to pay out for a cup of coffee, but they're not willing to pay out for a song. It's because if you give them that option where they don't have to, they're not going to. So it's not about it's not that kind of misses the point. It's not I don't think individuals place more um, more value in a cup of coffee than they do a song to be honest even casual music listeners i don't think they actually place more value in their costa cappuccino than they do in the last taylor swift single um but because you've given them the option to do that that's what's going to happen you know yeah 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 no absolutely i think you're you're right and um i don't know if you purposefully or not you quoted noel gallagher didn't you uh, Did I? <laughs> uh yeah yeah uh of saying what's wrong with the music industry saying that people would you know easily pay three quid for a flat white but wouldn't buy a cd for a tenor so yeah, uh those, yeah. so sure i mean so yeah in, in a sense it is that it is not the value but it's the market the value the perceived value but it's the uh, value of the marketplace that determines your choices as an individual yeah. you can make better or worse choices uh but yeah i mean and again to keep circling back to this being an effect of wider society you know uh, wages haven't been rising uh, haven't been keeping up with inflation and i think there is this general tendency in consumerism to uh, mask that by making more products, gadgets, services available at a lower price. So your salaries are not rising, but getting an iPhone is fucking cheap now. Uh, hey, you can have all the music for a tenor. Hey, Netflix subscription is pretty cheap. Here, have all these films. So it's sort of, uh, you know, we're, the graphs are not growing in the direction that is beneficial to us. But while we're getting all of these things available to us, it makes the problems on the wider scale seem less emergent. These are all of these band-aids that we were talking about. And yeah, it's hard to fix something systematically uh, with a lot of band-aids. We're part of a very strange generation who remember what it was like before that. We're part of a strange generation who remember what it was like before, you know, when you did have to go down to the shops and pay 20 quid for the Matrix on DVD, you know, <laughs> rather than have not just the Matrix, but the Matrix 2 and 3. I mean, why do you want to watch The Matrix Reloaded or Revolutions of the World? But the Animatrix, you know, you've got everything available to you for half the cost, half the price of that singular DVD, um, plus uh, hundreds of thousands of other films and everything else, you know. But we're part of a generation who have been through sort of been through both of those models and i kind of feel like i feel like like me and steve particularly we do feel like kind of crusty old men sometimes being like you must support music because otherwise it'll die but you know <laughs> it's kind of i mean i don't think music will die but it it it, it does make it i mean even before th things come along the unexpected things like global pandemics come along it's difficult enough as it is just to like make any kind of living out of this sort of thing. I don't, I don't know. Again, I don't know what I'm saying, but I guess, I guess we are, we are that generation who can remember both things. And I suppose I kind of worry that generations below us grow up being used to the fact that, you know, all music is available for nine ninety nine a month or whatever. 
and um, that's just the way things are and no one's no no one's going to be happy to go back to a model that they were never used to in the first place where actually no you have to pay 10 pounds per album rather than 10 pounds for everything you know you once once you yeah. once you've gone there you can't go back and i suppose that's that's the fundamental thing that i think spotify really screwed up to be honest because even spotify are saying that they're not making any money so they've screwed that surely they've screwed that model up haven't they no no you know you know just to riff on a couple of things that you're saying yeah, yeah, like yeah, um i don't think that it's a matter of going back nothing ever moves back in terms of no, progress it's it's no. about moving forward in the right yeah, way so if we shouldn't be like there is a certain element of nostalgia uh, for you and i for uh for people you know in our generation and we certainly have that ability that you know that contrast of knowing what it was like to obtain music in a different way the excitement of getting a magazine yeah. the the going to it, it was a different culture but i think the not looking back on it the, i think in terms of what it does do is change the people's relationship with the item, whether it's, you know, uh, being able to order a new pair of uh, trousers on Amazon versus going to a shop versus music, having all of this availability, the relationship to of you to that art changes. Um, so I think that that is um, something that is sort of not talked about uh, enough because uh, there, there's one aspect of it, how that relationship changed. The other aspect of it's like, um, with the technology, with the advent of technology and its falling prices, the, uh, there's a wonderful uh, book by Chris Anderson, which was written probably like 15 years ago now, called The Long Tail. Uh, Chris Anderson was an editor of Wired magazine, and he described what was it seemed in the early stages as a very accurate theory of uh, the niche markets, the long tail always extending, and that the future, uh, according to him, was selling uh, more of less things rather than having these mainstream things. He was that was the response to the internet at the time. So and um, the democratization of tools of production meant that more people could record music, and democratization of tools of distribution meant that more people can put music online. So we had this explosion in people making music, putting it online, and you can access it for really cheap, and your relationship with that content changes. And I think the combination of those factors have kind of screwed up the, you know, or, or at least misguided this transition that, that we're, do, we're going through now. And I think, you know, you said Spotify kind of screwed it up. Well, no, they, they haven't screwed it up. They've done exactly what they wanted to. And I have like this, there's this quote from 2010 from Daniel Ek. He said, music business right now, this is in 2010, is worth about 17 billion collectively. In about 10, 15 years, it will be worth 50 to 60 billion, and there will be only four companies to five companies left dominating it. He could see that tendency, and he said, even if we are left standing at the end of that journey, we, our company will be worth billions. So it's it, they are doing exactly what they thought they would do, and they are an exception because Spotify is the only major streaming platform that's not based off a successful company of hardware or retail. It's not Amazon. It's not Google. It's not Apple. It's not backed by anything. So their story is, in, in the story of major players, is the story of an underdog and how they got their initial catalogs and licenses. is fascinating. But um, they are doing ex exactly the right things within the current context, and they're playing it right. Unfortunately, the context doesn't favor artists or consumers or really, to a large extent, people living in this sort of neoliberal uh, society in the way that it's organized that way. But they're, they're doing all the right things for them in the right way to continue growing. 
And you say, yeah, they're not making money, but um, that is maybe the next thing we can touch on to. It's fine that they're not making money and they're still okay with that. So you're saying it's more of a long-term strategy than, than the short-term uh, yeah, they're yeah yeah they're betting on a technology and on their service. They they bet on streaming as being the right technology, and it is. That's the that's the way people consume movies. Uh, that's the way people consume music. Um, so they bet on the technology and they bet on their own platform. Um, so in that sense, and again, it mimics the things that are happening outside of the industry. We as as a society are addicted to growth. You know. Uh, yeah. graph goes up line go up it's the gdp sort of thing even though you know most people don't benefit from the graph going up we use that as a reference for how things are going so they uh, spotify doesn't need to make money it needs to show growth so uh, as long as that's the platform of the future they will make money later right so uh, you know before they expanded into india that's another billion people you know, uh, now in, in Africa, there's what 1.3 billion people. That's meant to be 2 billion people within the next 10 years. And all of them are becoming more and more connected to the internet. So it's if you're making losses, but the line is going up and there's more markets for you to expand into in a, in a technology that's going to dominate, that can be seen as a viable business venture. Now, whether that's good or not is a whole different question. But what they're doing is working in their context and it's going well. That was a really interesting thing that you um, introduced me to, the concept of expanding into these places like Africa and India, which I hadn't even considered, I have to say. This is why I wanted to bring you on, because you think about these things, you, I think just the circles that you run in are just, just so much more knowledgeable about this stuff. And sometimes I feel like I do have a very black and white view on, on what is an incredibly gray area. You know, it is really, really, really gray. But that sort of expansion into, yeah, I mean, India would be a billion odd people and, and, and South Africa, as you said, did you say 1.3 billion? You know, that that will, once Spotify do get into those markets, that just suddenly makes everything go up again because, and those countries are getting more and more connected to the internet as time goes on and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's a really, really good point that you're making. And so it's something that I often don't think about, but then whether that's good for us as consumers or not, don't know. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. Like, um, you know, as a savvy, sa semi-savvy internet consumer, like most people that I'm friends with use a VPN to connect online, right? When I, I'm signed up to Netflix, you know, like when I want to watch a film that's not on Netflix, I change the country that I'm connected to to the States. They have a larger catalog and I just stream as if I was present in America. If Spotify expands into India and has their entire catalog there and you use a VPN to pretend that you're in India, you can meet their reduced fee and start paying three bucks for your streaming services because that's what it costs there, right? They're trying to meet this larger population, but they're playing to the purchasing power of the consumer. So the membership there is cheaper. So, you know, Thomas Friedman, who's a horrible writer, and columnist once said that the world is flat, uh, but he is an absolute twat. But in a way that it, that is, it, it is flattening out. If, uh, if you have a VPN, why not sign up to those services there? There's always, you know, sort of faults or workarounds in these things. And sort of uh, without the lack of a, of a true, true global price for things, there's going to be these pitfalls and these companies trying to expand in different ways into different territories. And uh, yeah, the main name of the game is to monopolize markets. And uh, once you have the full control of the, of the situation, you're the one who's dictating the prices, both for consumers and both for people who want to appear in your platform. 
So, um, you know, and, and again, this mimics, you know, the publishing industry with Amazon is a fantastic example of that, mm -hmm. how they strangle that in order to have, they were all right making losses and now that they control it, they can dictate the terms. Same with music, you know, we, we, we don't even say DSPs, we say Spotify, right? They are dominating. So, uh, so yeah, if they dominate in that way, they get to call the editorial playlist, they get to call your exposure, they get to suddenly decide that you can give them some of their royalties for, uh, you know, more promotion. So that's, uh, it's the big dick moves that they get to do once they're in that position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you, th I mean, something that has come in um, this year is this whole sort of live streaming model as well, live streaming gigs. Obviously, you have to do it with uh, Bad Pond this year. And um, it's, I think it's something that the industry is kind of jumping on as another viable means of making money. Um, but there are some, I mean, I think it's a really interesting move that you guys are doing Bad Pond, the Bad Pond stream for free. But we've like we've encountered some stream, you know, and this is and the Bad Pond stream is going to be like an eight hour stream or something like that with seven different bands. I mean, you know, like that's absolutely fantastic. But, you know, there are some streams that have costs sort of in the region of twenty five, thirty dollars and stuff like that. And like um, there doesn't seem to be a uh, because it's a new way of doing things. There doesn't seem to be a specific kind of model for it yet. What are your feelings on um, this live streaming model? And do you think that it's something that could actually um, be very profitable for bands um, if they can set things up themselves? Um, okay. Um, I think that just, just to piggyback uh, off of what you said, um, I think that the reason our stream is free and um, because we received funding and it was part of this project is sort of to give back. So we are, we are lucky in that sense on, on this specific, uh, specific event. But loads of, yeah, loads of other bands are trying to fundraise and making these streams that are, you know, pricey and uh, hopefully their fans will engage and still support because the loss of income for touring bands is atrocious. So uh, hopefully, you probably, know, even I if it... I should probably clarify, actually, sorry to interrupt you, mate, I should probably clarify. I don't have a problem with um, bands charging money for streams at all, but... Um sometimes when you see a big artist like i mean i think the pucifer stream was like 26 dollars Corey taylor's was around the 25 dollar mark you know um it's it's that that's sort of a, you know if, if it's uh, like palm reader did one the other day and it was i think it was 11 pound 50 that seems totally fine to me you know but it's it's kind of like those i mean it's we've been talking about this the whole time the people at the t top can demand that kind of money but like that that's the sort of thing that i'm talking about just to clarify yeah yeah no I'm, I'm with you i'm with you i know you're not picking on bands trying to make a living i, I didn't mean to try to imply that but i think <laughs> overall if you kind of trace the trajectory and you kind of go back to say march the first lockdown happens nobody knows what's happening with gigs uh people are you know locked down in their houses and then they have a little bit of time and there's this appetite and there was this sort of you know, uh, Instagram Instagram live stream with an acoustic guitar. You could just sit down and play. And there was an engagement and an audience and people were like, yeah, this is what's happening in the moment. But as that went on, the attention span for those low low buy, low value productions kind of started yeah. slipping. Yeah. And uh, little by little, the yeah, people want more. Yeah. So, uh, so now the progression happens to, you know, better and better streams. But that... Um, I think at the end of the day, that is all uh, reactionary moves to loss of work and loss of touring. I don't think that streaming gigs are the future. I think that, you know, once the infrastructure is there, once the live uh, circuit opens up, 
there will be these these fantastic setups for live streams and we'll be seeing more of them than they happened before the lockdown but it is not something that is a viable way for a lot of touring bands to be making money on uh, it's and it also bypasses a lot of other infrastructures in within the live industry whether it's venues crews tech uh, you know gear renting company everything else that comes with it it's uh, it is again it's a band-aid and a response to the current context and i think it's wonderful that the production values are going up and these things are happening because we're in lockdown too and people do have an appetite for music and art but yeah it's a reactionary short-term solution and not to replace live music so that's interesting so do you believe that once everything gets back to whatever normal is do you believe that um the live streaming model will uh, disappear or do you think it will just shrink um, massively or what, what are your predictions for that? Uh, probably, I mean, <laughs> once, once the live circuit opens back up, not a lot of people will want to be streaming live shows. <laughs> I, I don't imagine people will want to, I hope people will want to go back into the venues. Since the infrastructure for these cameras, broadcast systems are there, I hope that more venues will, when their band is performing live, can do a stream version alongside it. So let's say there is a gig happening in New York you can't go to, but you would still yeah. like to participate somehow. You can get involved and it could be an aid to more ticketing, more revenue for organizers and performers. But um, uh, I do think that, yeah, there will, there will be more live streams. There will be more video content because now we're seeing these things being bought, installed and used. And they won't completely disappear, but they're again. I don't think they're here to replace or eat away at real, actual live music when it's allowed to happen again. No, I absolutely, um, I definitely agree um, that it won't be a replacement. But I think, I mean, I was reading a Guardian article quite recently, and the headline said the streaming startups trying to save the music industry mid pandemic. And I just thought some of the um, there's a there's a paragraph here which goes into some of the interesting statistics on how much some artists are able to make. So it said some acts have reaped serious money from ticketed live streams. Polestar reports that Laura Marling sold 4,500 UK tickets at £12 each for her show at London's Union Chapel in June. Uh, YouTube says Japanese artist Riel made $130,000 from a live stream on its platform in August. And BTS's management company, Big Hit, said they had 756,000 fans watch their Bang Bang Con live stream in June, each paying between, uh, I'll just do the British figures, £19.41 and £26.10, meaning a minimum gross of £14.6 million. Now, we are talking about, you know, uh, BTS there, who are inexplicably one of the ma biggest bands um in the world it seems but even it's interesting that even an artist like laura marling a very well respected and a you know a great great artist but she from that gig alone the kind of money that would have come in for that if it was um 4500 tickets at 12 pounds each is 54 grand you know and that seems like a hell of an opportunity to that that that's that's a too that seems too good an opportunity for um uh for bands and management to pass up going forward i mean i i do appreciate that it wouldn't be that big if some people could actually be there live as well but then that's just additional revenue because i'm sure those tickets if you were live there would, would be 25 quid rather than 12 quid so that's kind of how i imagine streaming could continue in that way does that make sense 
Yeah, yeah, and I mean these these stories are amazing, and but I feel like they're the outliers of yeah. the of the you know these are the few few positive stories. I think across the board, uh, bands are suffering. Some bands are able to make that living. You know, there's people who have different relationships with with uh, artists that have different relationships with their fan base, and they're more involved with them. You know, there's people like Amanda Palmer who has this incredible model, uh, and there will be people who are successful in in streaming services. People who have already have a built up audience, but I think that across the board, bands are hurting, and uh, a lot of bands that kind of you know have to have to go through this touring. It's different practicing for one show and doing the stream versus doing a tour. The way that you play, interact with the audience, with the crowd, the way that your progression as an artist is also different. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that the streaming capabilities and uh, the capabilities for creating um, higher AV content from that, even if it's not for live uh, broadcast, is going to remain. And it's, it's probably going to be incorporated into the model to some extent. But um, yeah, I just can't wait for uh, for everything to open back up again and to be able to go watch music, go play music, and uh, yeah. Uh, but I'm sure everybody who's listening to this feels the same way. Yeah, yeah, of course. I think if there's one positive from the amount that bands have had to live stream, it's the bands that have um, really put some creative thought into it, and it's become not just not just a gig that's filmed yeah i mean most bands are just doing like a rudimentary gig that is filmed which people are already getting fed up of and tired of you know um but i think there are some bands who've put a lot of really creative input into it and have created this interesting hybrid that's kind of part music video part concert um which it's almost it's almost created a new um medium in a weird way you know it's not it's not quite a new medium but it feels like it could be the the seedling that that starts something brand new and something someone will come along at some point and just make something absolutely incredible out of it um i don't know if you've seen this footage but there's an amazing gig this is actually pre-live stream but a lot of the really creative ones that i've seen have reminded me of um this gig rammstein in paris where they they filmed it in a really cinematic manner where the camera was often like this close to till's face and stuff like that and it wasn't just your usual normal concert experience um and they even had to go as far as kind of faking some shots and stuff like that you know some bits were actually during the show but some bits weren't to get the shots that they wanted but when you're watching it at home even though it is technically bits of it are quote-unquote faked it just makes for a much more interesting viewing experience at home with a beer in hand or a smoke or whatever you know it it and i think that there there's an art it might be a bit ott to call it an art form but there's a, there's a kind of new art form opening up there as a result of all this stuff potentially i don't know i i, th I think so i think people <laughs> The, the true creatives have made the best of the situation and in the, yeah. in the creative ways that you've described. I think if it's, you know, kind of setting up a platform for something, I think down the line, the, the thing that will be more likely to succeed is virtual reality shows and something yes. more encompassing. Yes. So I think if it's heading there, then uh, I would agree with you that there is a whole new world that would, would grow out of it. But I'm not sure that the infrastructure that's being installed now for live streaming, how that will translate to the actual... Uh, you know, physical headsets uh, and uh, everything else that comes with the more encompassing experiences. So the more you, you know, start tricking your brain and believing that you're more involved uh, with simulating being at a show, I think there's a long way to go there and there's, 
going to be some interesting changes in that market. And uh, yeah, we're all going to live through it. It's going to be perhaps that is the next stage. You know, you said we lived through a, a different era, you know, the 90s kids of not having internet. Now we've had this. Perhaps we will be going to shows with headsets uh, in five years time and be happy to spend, you know, 11 pounds or 25 bucks on it. Who knows? I mean, that sounds more exciting to me where I can be effectively the cameraman and I can sort of go where I want. And with a with a sort of so virtual headset shows have been talked about um, for a fair, a fair while now. I've heard about them at least five years ago, I reckon. Um, just the, the nub of the idea, certainly before live streaming. And I think the thing that excited me about it, I mean, this isn't this isn't the sort of thing that's going to excite the money men or the money women. Um, but um, the idea that virtual concerts could um, enable people who are not or normally able to go to shows, maybe due to some sort of disability or something like that, um, the fact that they could experience live music um, in, in a much more satisfying manner than just sitting there and watching a gig on YouTube or something like that. You know, if you're if you're if you're wearing a, a, a virtual reality headset or something like that it feels like you can actually walk around and and interact and move and all, all that kind of thing and i think there are some exciting things that could be opened up for that um i mean i suppose initially it'll only be open to the the biggest bands i would have thought and i do worry about how much money they would charge for that sort of experience um because there were a few kind of figures that were being chucked around which already just seemed ridiculously high to me but then i suppose people know that um you know if people are willing to pay pay it they will charge that kind of money won't they so um but yeah i'm i'm quite excited by the idea of virtual reality concerts as as um vr is becoming far more of a normal thing um i suppose we just have yeah to yeah it, it is it is an interesting thing and um i think there's an element of obviously the element of hardware and I think it's um, the platforms and the hardware for it so for example like Netflix which is you know dominates obviously the streaming industry the idea for it was actually once tried to be put in practice by AOL and they tried to create a movie ser uh, service but at the time uh, there wasn't enough uh, of you know fast uh, broadband internet there was the connectivity right. across consumers was yeah, not yeah, fast yeah. enough for that idea to take off fast so forward early, nine basically. we were yeah. too early yeah. so um, I think that there uh, I think it's kind of in a way too early to to be talking about VR gigs because we don't have the cheap affordable uh, infrastructure for consumers to have that yeah. so uh, eventually yeah. you know prices will drop as you know memory doubles uh, every year processing power doubles every year that's Moore's law and then consumer prices keep falling down because uh, we find cheaper and cheaper ways to cut corners to do it and yeah once that becomes once the platform for creating it becomes available and the platform for the consumers becomes available that will take off of course like the way you describe it it will start um, with the top acts and trickle down like any sort of technology where you know it starts with the rich the privileged the connected and then it becomes sort of it goes from early adopters to uh, to to the mass consumers progressively and yeah it could open up uh, possibilities for people with for example with disabilities who can't attend certain shows but i think the the more predominant factor of that uh, will be geographical limitations because there will be people who are in southeast asia people who are in africa will be able to attend shows for bands who can't tour in their countries and they will be able to feel like they're a part of events so i think the potential for that uh once the 
you know, the actual hardware becomes widespread and available is really exciting because again, it's that growth. You can start all of a sudden you, it's really even hard to evaluate how big it can be should people be given access and you know and perhaps uh, much like Spotify adopted their you know uh, membership price for different regional territories to meet the reduced purchasing power of the consumer perhaps with VR shows we'll see representative prices for depending from where you are and how you know each to their own ability and then you know there'll be people like you and I who will connect with a VPN pretend we're in India and then uh, watch uh, the new Deftones show for a you know that pound 50 <laughs> Yeah, and you can be on Abe's drum store. That would be kind of cool if you could find a way to like play along. I mean, that couldn't be a live thing, but if you could actually find a way to play along as well, that would be fucking amazing. It'd be like Oof. a rock band experience. So it's like part game, part actual live concert. I mean, that could be amazing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You're talking about Guitar Hero 2.0, aren't yeah. you? Because, yeah, with yeah. VR sets, uh, you'll be able to have this jam with the real band where you're actually performing the song. I mean, the yeah, the technology that's yet to come is fantastic and the possibilities are amazing. But much like you said, you know, maybe Spotify kind of messed it up. It's 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 nobody's going to mess it up. People are going to act in their financial interest. I just hope that the framework for the next expansions are uh, in line with what the creators and the consumers want not the gatekeepers of the industry yeah. yeah i think that that is the fundamental issue with business full stop isn't it it's those two <laughs> parallels it's like the the gatekeepers the people who can set this stuff up who are trying to make money out of it versus the people who actually want to consume it and when those interests align which I think is very, very rare, that's going to create the most interesting stuff. But um, yeah, it is. I, you know, I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I agree with it. I don't think okay. it's businesses and consumers. I think there is a third arbiter. I think it's the governments. Businesses, are all, businesses have always existed. They could, it could have been called, you know, sole traders or entrepreneurs or just people who did things. And now they're called businesses. But it's just people really doing things. Uh, I think businesses are going to innovate, create in all, in all sorts of manner, you know, whether it's technology or art itself. It's up to the referee who is supposed to be impartial to make sure that uh, it's beneficial that those businesses operate for, for the benefit of its constituents. And I think so. I don't think uh, I think placing blame on businesses is not entirely correct either the way that uh, putting pressure on consumers to make the changes isn't either. I think that the main effort needs to be concentrated at the referee, the adults in the room, the government, in order to help align those interests. Uh, I, I, yeah, absolutely. That sounds absolutely sage uh, words of wisdom to me, Vlad. You always make um, areas that I think are far simpler than uh, then I should give them credit for that you seem make them seem far more complex and open to me and far more gray than black and white but I always appreciate that when I speak to you about it so Vlad I really really appreciate you spending an hour and a half with us going through this stuff and opening my mind to uh, these things because um, uh, yeah, I think it really helps to get a bit of a different perspective on stuff and you have just so much knowledge with this stuff. So I really, really appreciate you spending the time. Um, I should reiterate once again that Bad Pond Festival is happening 
uh, on Saturday the 19th of December. So the bands playing for Bampon Festival are Jamie Lenman, St Agnes, A.A. Williams, Orchards, Gender Rolls, Clip Drip and Yumi and the Weather. Um, I'm going to interview all of them in between <laughs> their sets. Um, I'm actually going to do it in advance. It's not going to be live, but then it's going to be interspersed with that. It sounds like a really cool thing that you guys are going to be doing. It sounds like it's almost going to be like MTV for a day, um, but just with <laughs> weird, odd bands. Um, but yes, that's happening on Saturday, the 19th of December, and I strongly urge you to check it out then. Uh, Vlad, thank you so much for spending an hour and a half with me and talking music and the world and trying to... Um, put the world to rights etc etc we do this we do this on a semi-regular basis uh privately but i've always just wanted to sit down and record one uh and uh it's been a pleasure to do that man thank you uh thank you thank you remfrey i hope um i hope my ramblings uh in trying to connect the dots in an unusual way were, were interesting enough and i really enjoyed chatting to you both in private and in public. And uh, I'm looking forward to all of those interviews in our MTV-like day on the 19th of uh, December. Yeah, I've got to actually do them. Shit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, buddy. Um, in Technicolor, we'll be on the road again as soon as they're able to be. The album, the debut album, Big Sleeper, came out earlier this year. We gave it an absolutely ravishingly great review. It is very good indeed. Um, and yeah, Bad Pond on Saturday, the 19th of December. Vlad, thank you very much for your time once again. Thank you very much for having lots of fingers and lots of pies and having lots of um knowledge when it comes to areas that i should have more knowledge in <laughs> absolute pleasure to chat with you ramf and uh, i hope we can do it again sometime amazing cool thank you very much buddy i'll speak to you soon take it easy bye bye